Thank you to the music team and the AV team for serving us each and every week and helping us to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. So let me pray, and then we'll read the passage, and then hear what God has to teach us this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to it. So we have access to you, and we have access to your throne of grace. We look to you now. ask that you would grant us by your spirit understanding, conviction, encouragement, comfort, that we would see more of you, that you would increase our faith, help us to live lives that are obedient to your will for us, help us to be faithful as we look to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king... And if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. I've titled this message, The Replacement. The Replacement. So the crisis of the story has not yet been resolved. There's still an edict out for the annihilation of the Jews. The man who planned the decree is dead, Haman, But the unalterable decree is still very much alive. The future of the Jews is still uncertain and in the balance. These are God's covenant people on the brink of being completely destroyed. And we can't forget that. Where is God? What is God doing? Has he left his people because of their unfaithfulness, lack of commitment, and their disobedience? Has he failed on his promises for them? Is he still working everything out? Remember, the Jews were given the opportunity to return to their homeland from exile, and some of them had chosen not to return. Despite warnings from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah before they even were exiled, to come out of Babylon after 70 years of captivity, some don't return. They didn't heed the warnings. Even though they had been granted access to return from exile, through God's providence of using a pagan king named Cyrus, 
to issue a decree allowing them to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple for worship. Many chose to remain in their adopted homeland within the vast Persian Empire. They had turned away from God to seek their own well-being. Now by God's providence, another pagan king, King Ahasuerus, gives permission for a decree to be made in favor of the Jews. This is yet another testimony of God's faithfulness to keep his promises and to fulfill his perfect plan. God may be hidden in the story of Esther, but he's always actively working behind the scenes. God is there. God is doing something. God has not abandoned them because of their lack of faith and their disobedience. God has not failed, and God will not fail on his promises for them. And God is still working everything out. Not only has God not left them, but God is working through their lack of commitment to him to providentially protect and preserve his people. In fact, he will allow and is using Esther and Mordecai to have influence within the Persian Empire and directly with the king himself. Against all odds, as we've seen through a series of unexpected and seemingly insignificant events. We see that there is hope because God is working behind the scenes through the actions and lives of people to display both his justice and his mercy. And all of that is a part of his perfect plan. Much of the plot, as we've seen, advances based on what people don't know. Haman doesn't know Esther is related to Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't know the gallows are for him. Haman doesn't know why he was invited to the banquet. The king doesn't know of Haman's rivalry with Mordecai. Even the reader doesn't know why Esther delayed her request even just one day. Although we find out it was God's providential way of exposing everyone's secrets. But the plot of the story of Esther, just as with all of our lives here and with everything going on around in the world, advances based on what God knows and what God has planned. Because this is God's story. This is his creation. This is his plan. And it's all for his glory. We can trust that nothing is out of place. The enemy of the Jews, Haman, has just been put to death and hanged on the gallows for public display and humiliation. That was a picture demonstrating God's, that God's enemies and those who oppose him will not prevail. And we left off last week with the king's anger subsiding after Haman was hanged. And the last time prior to that, that it says the king's anger subsided was back in chapter 2, verse 1, where it led to a replacement of Queen Vashti with Queen Esther. Now the king's anger subsiding anticipates another replacement in favor of the Jews, as we will see. The death of Haman doesn't resolve everything, but it does set a sequence of reversals into motion that will bring about the solution for the Jews. So in this section, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8, Esther and Mordecai are granted permission by the king to devise a plan to counter Haman's decree so that we can see that God is providing the solution for the preservation of his people, for the protection of his people, for the care of his people. And in verses 1 through 2, we'll see the position, the position. So verse 1 continues following the events of the previous day, which really began the night the king couldn't fall asleep. And into the morning when Haman shows up to ask the king if he could hang Mordecai, but wasn't presented the opportunity to. 
and rather was asked by the king to honor Mordecai for what he had done in saving the king's life. Then Haman hears some pretty depressing words from his wife and his friends before being brought to the second banquet that Esther had prepared. And at this banquet, Esther reveals her request, and Haman is exposed, and in his terrified state, he begs for his life and falls before Queen Esther and thus provides the opportunity for the king to walk back in and falsely accuse him, thus shifting the attention away from his plot, his, his, uh, his, um, his involvement in the plot, and therefore only focusing on what Haman had done, and they're allowing him to accuse Haman for what he had done, and thus giving an opportunity for Haman to be justly accused of what he had plotted against the Jews. So we see that at, that day was filled with lots of events, lots of providential events that proved to be beneficial for Esther and for Mordecai and thus for all of the Jews. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, on that day. So this is still that same day. It's probably later in the day, but it's the same day. The day is not over yet. Haman has just been killed. And on that day, it says, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. The house of Haman refers to the whole estate of Haman and all his possessions. This was a significant amount of value. Historical records indicate that in the Persian Empire, the goods and property of condemned criminals were taken over by the king. And we read that the king gives it all to Queen Esther. It doesn't say why he does that. He just does. Perhaps to console her for all of Haman's actions against her. Or perhaps he remembered his decree and was already thinking about how he wouldn't be able to change it after hearing Esther's request and petition. So he gives everything to her that belonged to him and knowing that he had to do something, maybe in hopes that that was enough. We really don't know. But we do know that Esther finally revealed that she was a Jew through making her relationship with Mordecai known. The king already knows that Mordecai is a Jew from his reference of him in chapter 6, verse 10. And we know from chapters 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 20, that Esther was told and commanded and instructed by Mordecai not to make her people known. And now the king finds out that Esther is also a Jew. But that's not the focus here. Verse 1 continues and says, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The focus is rather on Mordecai. That was the perfect time to disclose that information based upon prior events and also for the present moment at hand. The king has just lost his trusted friend who was second in command. The king was in this giving mood. And she says, let me introduce you to the man who saved your life. And oh, by the way, we're related. He's my older cousin who took care of me when, I was, when my parents passed away as if I was his own daughter. We know that from chapter 2, verse 7. When it says that she disclosed what he was to her, that's not just talking about their blood relationship, but also the quality of their relationship and also of Mordecai's character. In other words, she's really putting in a good word for him truthfully at this very critical moment. By God's providence and perfect timing, look at verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. 
And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The king, surprisingly out of character from what we know from the story so far, makes one of the very few decisions on his own without looking to others. And it results in Haman's property and position being handed over to Mordecai. The signet ring symbolizes royal authority as well as trust. The power is now in the hands of Mordecai. We see here that two Jews occupy two extremely powerful positions within the Persian Empire. Mordecai the Jew is now second in command in Persia, and Esther the Jew is the queen of Persia. God places people in positions to work out his plans. That includes all people, whether believers or unbelievers, and that includes each person sitting here this day. God places people in positions to work out his providential plan. Where has God placed you? What positions have you been entrusted with? How are you working for the spiritual good of those around you? How are you serving to advance the gospel? Where has God placed you and what are you doing with that position? Whether you're a mom or a dad, a husband or wife, a student, an employee. Are you working for the spiritual good of those around you? How are you serving to advance the gospel? Esther and Mordecai are in positions to make an impact and influence that changes lives. Don't forget that each one of us are in positions to make an impact and influence that can change lives forever. You have the gospel message of hope and salvation. You hold the most powerful weapon in your hands. You have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God that cuts down to the core of who people are and exposes them bare to their sin. We have seen the position that God has placed Esther in and now Mordecai. Let's look at how they will use their position. In verses 3 through 8, we'll see the plan. The plan. At this point, there has been a change in positions and a transfer of possessions, but there hasn't been an answer to Esther's request and petition for the lives of her people. So what angered the king was not the threat to Esther's people, but rather the insult to his honor for the attack upon his queen. Once that was dealt with, his anger subsided. This is why Esther must appeal and plead before the king concerning Haman's decree. The king seems quite content and apparently has decided to leave the whole affair behind, undoubtedly because of his own part in it. So this time, instead of the king initiating the conversation, we see that Esther takes action. She initiates the question. Notice verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. Esther again has to tread carefully and thoughtfully in choosing her words and communicating her heartfelt pain for her people without any indication of blaming the king or pointing the finger at the king. And because the king wasn't necessarily concerned about the threat to Esther's people, 
Esther has to use her own influence to move the king to be concerned about her own well-being so that something might be done for her people. Verse 3 says that Esther fell at the king's feet, wept, and implored him. She is finally fulfilling Mordecai's command that was given to her in chapter 4, verse 8, where he orders her to go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people, which she hasn't done until this moment. And notice that Esther is careful to leave out the king and only points the finger at Haman. She says, The evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. And she will continue to stress the fact that all of the blame should fall on Haman by mentioning his full name in verse 5. And if we look at verse 4, it's interesting to note that it says, the king extended his golden scepter to Esther, but she wasn't coming to him unsummoned and thereby putting her life at risk again. And how do we know that? Because the beginning of verse 3 says that Esther spoke again, indicating that she was already in the king's presence from earlier. So the king extended his golden scepter to Esther was a sign of favor and encouragement to rise and speak. This presents the opportunity that Esther wanted to address the decree that would destroy all of her people. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And look at what it says in verses 5 and 6. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther appeals to the king four times in addressing him. She's convincingly stacking the king's desires on top of one another before she presents her plan. She says first, if it pleases the king, speaking to his position of honor. Then she gets personal. If I have found favor before you, then she speaks again of his position in honor. If the matter seems proper to the king. And lastly, she gets personal again. If I am pleasing in your sight. It's a back and forth of, I want to honor you, and I want what's best for you, and what you want with, how do you feel about me? Have I found favor with you? Am I pleasing in your sight? Referring to, really, her outward appearance. Her outward appearance. We know that Esther is beautiful of form and face from chapter 2, verse 7. So what is Esther's plan? The second half of verse 5 says that she wants it to be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. She's careful not to use the word law, but instead she uses letters because she knew that Persian laws could not be changed. They are final. And she wants to leave room in the king's mind to be able to present an opportunity. And furthermore, she put all the blame on Haman and avoided blaming the king. In verse 6, she appeals to the king by expressing that it would be hard for her to go on if her people are destroyed and killed. She repeats, how can I endure twice? Implying that she wouldn't be able to. How will the king respond? Look at verse 7. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman 
to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. The king simply announces and tells Esther and Mordecai that he has done all that he can do, and the rest is up to them. He has given the house of Haman to Esther, which Esther appoints to Mordecai, which is worthy of honor and many riches. And he has also hanged their enemies on the gallows because of his plot against the Jews. He's saying, what else can I do for you? And notice verse 8. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. The emphatic personal second person plural pronoun, you, and the imperative verb, which is a command to write, are used here, meaning you guys write. Specifically, you, Esther, and you, Mordecai, you guys write it. And it's ironic that the king is refusing to accept any responsibility for what he is actually giving permission to do by granting them the signet ring to approve with his approval. And he's been doing this throughout the entire story. So in God's providence and plan, he is using a pagan king to grant favor upon the Jews by allowing them to write a decree in response to Haman's decree to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews. God is providing this, the solution for the preservation of his people. And the only solution is to write another decree to counteract the first decree. And now Esther and Mordecai are in a position to be able to enact that plan. How will the irreversible death warrant be reversed? What will Esther and Mordecai devise to counteract the decree that is already in place? And will it work? The threat to the Jews still remains, and we don't know what will happen. We have seen the unfolding of God's plan through the replacement of Haman with Mordecai and how that has begun to lead to changes in favor of the Jews through the actions of the pagan king Ahasuerus. His providence covers over pagan kings and evil rulers, and he has his people in the places that they are in for a reason. God's providence covers over pagan kings and evil rulers, and he has people in the places that they are in for a reason. God is always at work behind the scenes, and we cannot forget that. And what an appropriate and timely truth for us to think upon and apply to our lives. There has been a lot of talk recently about the presidential election. Regardless of what you believe happened, the inauguration took place, and there has been a replacement in the White House. There has been a change that will undoubtedly lead to some significant consequences for Christians. I'm not saying this to get political, but rather to encourage us to be biblical, to be prepared, to have the right perspective. Persecution is coming for the church. How do you feel about that? Will your faith be tested? Will your convictions be challenged? Will divine truth be suppressed and oppressed? Is this what God has planned for his church? 
Will churches face legal and financial troubles? Has God said in his word that his people, his church, will be persecuted? Yes. And they have been from the very beginning with the first century church and will continue to be, and most likely, increasingly so. The reality is, if your hope is in anything other than God, you will be disappointed. You will be discouraged. You will even be fearful. It might feel like we're also under a decree that is out to kill, to destroy, and to annihilate us. And though it might not be that extreme at this moment, there may be seemingly irrevocable laws that will make it very difficult to counteract. But remember that ultimately God's law of justice and God's law is above who, all who are in authority and above human laws. We shouldn't expect worldly leaders and governments to rule according to God's standards for the spiritual good of people. Furthermore, there will be times, there will be times where we must obey God rather than men, meaning disobeying civil authority for the sake of obeying God and trusting God with the consequences. Submission to any human authority is always qualified by obedience to God's word first. Submission to any human authority is always qualified by obedience to God's word first. All other considerations are secondary. So how should Christians respond when their governing authorities prohibit or severely restrict something that the Bible commands? Are we only to look to the governing authorities placed over us or to the governing authority who has placed them over us and is over all? As with all things, we are to closely examine the scriptures and draw biblical principles that we can apply to our individual circumstances. Am I being asked to do something that is contrary to the word of God? Am I being forbidden from obeying the word of God? Am I being required to do something that God has forbidden? Am I being told to abstain from something that God has commanded? God's authority and God's mandates rise above the authority and mandates that are given contrary to his word. Obedience to God prioritizes the favor of God. Obedience to God prioritizes the favor of God. Our motivation should be the desire that God would be honored, that God would be glorified above all else. Human power structures change quickly. They are not permanent no matter how secure they may be. Haman is at the peak of his power in chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 7, he's dead. In chapter 8, a completely different influence is promoted. It is all temporary, but it is significant because God is working out his perfect plan through it, no matter who is in that position of power. As Christians, there is a blessed cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ. God has told us this. We have experienced this. This is how we live as those who have denied ourselves, taken up our cross daily to follow him. And persecution is one of those blessed costs that is not without reward. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. First John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not saying to have a persecution complex and to go around looking for it or to be indifferent about it. Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So to be clear, this is not saying go look for persecution or to cause trouble or to be indifferent about it. This is simply stating the reality that we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes our way for following Christ and for proclaiming the gospel because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 We are to cling to Christ who is our eternal hope and we are to look to him our sure and steady anchor as we sang. Christ is our sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through us and our sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when our sinking hopes are few, what will we do? We will hold fast to the anchor because it will never be removed. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Romans 8, 35 and 37. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Romans eight eighteen. the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
because Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and we are part of another kingdom that is not of this world. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 47 verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Exodus 15 verse 18, God reigns. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And we serve our one true and living God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 Our hope is in God. Our hope is in God who is sovereign over government and all earthly powers no matter who is in those positions. They will all be replaced. They will all be replaced and ultimately and eternally at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in, on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So do you have a personal relationship with God? Is Jesus your Savior and the Lord of your life? Have you repented and believed in the gospel Are you in agreement with what God says about who he is and who you are and what you rightly deserve? The Bible says that God is the sovereign creator who created everything. Therefore, he owns and rules everything and has complete and full authority over our lives and we owe him absolute commitment, obedience, and worship. The Bible says that God is perfectly holy so he cannot commit or approve of anything evil. And he requires perfect obedience to his law. But according to the scripture, everyone is sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're guilty of sin for breaking God's law. We are utterly incapable of understanding, loving, or pleasing God on our own. We are sinners, and our sin demands a penalty. God's holiness and justice demand that all sin be punished by death. That's why simply changing our patterns of behavior can't solve our sin problem or eliminate its consequences. But God has not left us without hope. Even though God's justice demands death for sin, his love has provided his son, Jesus Christ, the only Savior who paid the penalty and laid down his life for sinners. Christ's death satisfied the demands of God's justice, and Christ's perfect life satisfied the demands of God's holiness, and Christ's resurrection from the grave affirms his conquering power over sin and death. So he's able to forgive and save those who repent and believe and place their faith in him. So turn from your own sins and sinful ways and acknowledge that you are sinful, that you have sinned against God and that your sin separates you from a holy God and that you can do absolutely nothing on your own to save yourself from God's righteous wrath. Turn to Christ and follow him Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We see that God has been directing all of history through wicked and evil rulers towards the gospel of his son. And he is directing all of history through wicked and evil rulers toward his son's return. 
to establish his eternal kingdom and exercise his reign and rule as our perfect king. It doesn't matter who is in positions of earthly power. It doesn't matter that Satan is the lowercase g, God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. God is always accomplishing his plan and saving his people, and nothing can stop that. Nothing. God's light will always prevail over darkness. God has established his church and is building his church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We are to be in this world as light, as salt, to proclaim to all that the kingdom of God is at hand and that the kingdom of this world is passing away. We have seen God's faithfulness and protection of his covenant people Israel from their enemies as God is providing the solution for the preservation and protection of his people. And he's doing the same for his church, for us, those who believe and are in Christ. We are eternally secure in Christ, and God is working providentially in all things, which includes the completely secular and ungodly course of human actions and events to save his people. Human action is necessary and essential to divine providence, yet God's triumph in history ultimately depends on what he does and what he has promised in his word and what he is doing and accomplishing in the day-to-day lives of people, whether believers or unbelievers. And we see that here. God is using this pagan king to grant favor to his people. God is using unfaithful, disobedient Esther and Mordecai to be placed into positions of power and influence and impact, and they use it to their benefit to seek the king's favor so that they might be granted this opportunity as God provides the solution for the preservation of his people. As Christians, this is not something to fear. When we look to God, we're comforted. We know that Christ has conquered sin and death. We are his. We are his. Is that enough? Is Christ enough? Is being his, being a follower of Christ, living for Christ, seeking God's glory, pursuing his glory, living for him, is that enough? We will face challenges. We will face persecution. We will suffer. We will be afflicted. And God's word tells us that. And we have all lived that. But we shall not fear. We have God on our side. We have God's spirit that is continually sanctifying us, conforming us, and we have been entrusted with the good news. We have been entrusted with the good news that we are to proclaim boldly, zealously, actively, intentionally. That's what will transform lives. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So would you be comforted as those who are in Christ that though we may face lots of things in the days to come, though we may feel that it's unfair, we can trust in a God who is above all things, who knows all things, who's loving and caring for us above all things perfectly. And that love will never change for us. So let's turn to him in prayer and thank him for who he is.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your word, how you will care and protect us as your people. Though that doesn't mean that we're going to live a persecution-free life and everything will be good and merry, we know that as your people, we can trust in you. That ultimately, your justice and your mercy will prevail. That your righteous judgment will be perfectly executed as we seek to be wise and discerning in how we are to live our lives in the midst of different mandates and different laws. Help us to look to your word to find if it's in if it's contrary to your commands for us. Help us to see if it forbids us or prevents us from doing something that you've called us to do. Help us, above all, to seek to be obedient to you first. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords over our lives. And we live to please you. We live to honor you. We have denied ourselves and put ourselves under you as your slaves to faithfully serve you as your people. I pray that as we do that, not only here within this church, but outside this church as we look around and have family members and friends, neighbors who don't know you, I pray that that would cause our hearts to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.